Amen. So hey, over the last uh, four or five times that we've been in the book of Philippians, there's a couple things we probably need to remember or be reminded of. Uh, the book of Philippians is a book written to believers. It's a book written to the church. He starts off in chapter 1 talking about to the saints in Philippi, to those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that this was one of Paul's prison letters. He wrote this while he was in, uh, locked up in Rome, chained to, chained to one of those elite soldier guys the whole time. Can you imagine being one of those soldiers hanging out with Paul? Whether you like it or not, you're going to be prayed for, you're going to hear the word, and you're going to see, see the ministry going on. We see that it's kind of a neat book. It doesn't have a whole lot of correction and rebuke. We see some, some books, you get to Galatians and who has bewitched you. And we don't see much of that in Philippians. Philippians is a, really, it's a letter of thanksgiving because uh, Paul is, is writing in response to the gift that the Philippians had, a uh, monetary gift that the Philippian church had brought to him. And he talks a lot about rejoicing. And he lays out, he lays out a bunch of doctrine and important stuff to help us know how to rejoice and abound in the Lord. He starts off in chapter 1, and he talks about being thankful for the participation in the gospel that, they, that the Philippian church had done. He, Paul talks about his tough things that have gone on and how everything in his life actually serves for the furtherance of the gospel. He states his hope that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Absolute confidence in the Lord. He implores us to live our lives worthy of that gift that God has given us. Salvation in Christ Jesus. The ability to be right before God. He explains Jesus' example of humility. What Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did coming from heaven to be the sacrifice for our sins. He talks about the exaltation that Jesus is back at the right hand of God the Father and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He warns us to beware of false teachers. He reminds us that our good works and our resume, so to speak, doesn't, isn't our purpose, isn't our point of righteousness, that we are right before God only by faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, he reminds us to press on Work towards the goal. So it's this balance between, it's this whole book, I, I, I just look at it and I see this balance between, yes, we're to work out our salvation, but we're not to work for our salvation. Our salvation is a free gift apart from anything that we have done. He finishes up in chapter 3, reminding us of the hope that we have for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The fact that our citizenship is in heaven that we are not Canadian citizens first, but we are citizens of heaven first. We are simply at an outpost, so to speak, here on the earth. That our bodies will be transformed in Jesus. I'm reminded of, of the end of 1 Corinthians where it says that mortality will be clothed immortality. That he takes away the sting of death and talks about the faithfulness of our Savior. And then we get to chapter 4, where we are today. And he starts off and he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. If your Bible probably has a little footnote behind the word brothers. And it would say brothers or sisters. And it just reminds me that, that the, the body of Christ, those who can be in Christ Jesus, is neither Greek nor Jew, nor male or, male or female, or slave or free. They're all one in Christ Jesus, it tells us in Galatians. We are... 
in Christ, for those of us who have accepted Jesus, we are heirs with Christ. We have been qualified, as it says in Corinthians, to share in the inheritance. The inheritance of our salvation. The inheritance that we can have right standing before God. It also says that we're heirs in suffering. We don't always like that very much, but we are heirs in suffering. And we're heirs in hope through that suffering. Brothers and sisters, we are actually siblings with Christ Jesus. Kind of crazy to think of it that way, isn't it? Paul says, talking about this, this church, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. You know, Paul had a special relationship with the church in Philippi. We see in this, kind of there's an emotional connection that Paul has. This, this church was his family. I don't know about you guys if you've experienced the family of Christ, hanging out in the body of Christ. You know, my wife and I, we, we, we moved here six or seven years ago, and we're not that far from our blood family, but we're far enough that it's a ferry ride and time away. We have, we have understood what it means to have a family that maybe we don't share the same bloodline, but we, we have been adopted together as heirs. I understand that. The longing for, the friendships, the desires... You know, in chapter 1, verse 8, um, the description, I actually like how the King James says it. Sometimes that old kind of has a, a neat way of, of describing something. Paul, Paul talks about his longing. He says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you with all the bowels of Christ Jesus. The idea that in his guts he has a, has a yearning to be with God's people. He says, They are my joy and my crown. You know, I, I kind of think that... Um, I think that Paul saying my joy and my crown about the Philippian church was kind of a little bit of a proud daddy. Uh, he had planted this church. He had uh, ministered and discipled them. And the reality is, is that they've been a pretty faithful group. He doesn't have a lot of discipline to talk to them about. He has a lot of encouragement. I think they were faithful. We see that this letter is a response to their giving. They've been faithful. But the reality is, is we can look at all these little bits of this first sentence, the first line, okay, we, we got airship, we're, we're, we're siblings, and, and, you know, joy and crown and love and all that stuff, but we can't forget that it starts with the word therefore. Anytime we see therefore, we always have to look before so we can understand the following statement. In Philippians chapter 3, the last little bit, verses 20 and 21, Paul describes our citizenship. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies, or transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So in light of our citizenship in heaven, in light of our faithful Savior, in light of his powerful nature, and the hope that he's going to transform this, you know, this is just kind of a, breaking down tent. And probably all of us, as we bodies change, and I'm sure I'll probably say it even more the older I get, it doesn't, it changes, and it's not lasting. And God's going to take this, and he's going to change it, and he's going to make it into something that lasts eternally. So in light of that, he says, it's like he's saying, therefore my family, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He ends with the terms of endearment. So stand firm. Carry on doing what you're doing. 
We've seen in the, in cha- in the earlier parts of this book that this, this group was fellowshipping, partaking in the work of the gospel, in the work of the church. So he says, carry on in this. I love you guys. You're my brothers and sisters. Carry on in this because of what Jesus has done, because of his strength. Then we jump into verses 2 and 3, and we get the first little, we get the little bit of reproof or correction that Paul's going to address in this church. He says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat this lady whose name starts with S, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, we don't know what this rift was between these two ladies. But I do know that it was substantial enough that when Epaphroditus came and he brought this gift to Paul, I imagine they sat back and had a chat, you know, catching up as old friends. Not kind of how we would over coffee now. How are things going? How's the church going? How are my friends? How's my family? And Epaphroditus probably said, you know, things are going pretty good. And the church is, you know, but you know, these two ladies, there's just this, oh man, there's this problem. It was a big enough deal that Epaphroditus, who may have been a pastor, but certainly a leader in this church, brought it up before Paul and said, hey, we got this rift going on. You know, how often doesn't that happen? I think of the idea of of rifts. The devil comes, the word says in John 10.10 that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that I, that being Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The devil wants to come in. He wants to implode our homes. He wants to implode our families. He wants to implode our church. You know, I think of, the, of implosion. Uh, we've probably all watched those videos of when they take a high-rise down. When they intentionally take a high-rise down, they place charges at the foundation. They don't actually have to place charges the whole way up the building. Very specific places they put it. And once the weight of that st- starts falling upon its own foundation, it just... <laughs> into rubble, absolute destruction. Of no worth is left when something implodes. It's brutal. I think of what happens when there's an explosion. You guys might remember years ago when there was the Oklahoma City bombing of the, that building in the States, right? Now, if you looked at the pictures of that, it was an explosion on the outside of the building, and the back half of the building was still standing, actually. The front half blew off. Yes, it made a huge mess. It made a carnage. But there was still some, I guarantee you, there was salvageable items in that building. There was something salvageable. There's something about when something gets attacked from within and implodes on itself that it just completely annihilates. The devil wants to do complete annihilation. His most effective work against us and our families and our churches is from the inside out. So what does Paul say? He says to these ladies, agree in the Lord. Put your stuff aside. You know, we know that the heart of, I know when I have a disagreement with someone, generally, if I really, really go down to the root of it, it's something about self-interest on my part and probably self-interest on the other party's part. As we look at the book of Philippians, we're told that we're to have the mind of Christ. We've seen that Paul and Timothy in the beginning described themselves as bondservants, as slaves. 
Jesus described himself as a bondservant or as a slave to God the Father. In fact, in chapter 2, in a rhetorical question, so if there is any encouragement, so it's like because there's encouragement in Christ, because there's comfort from his love, because there's participation in the Spirit, because there's affection and sympathy, complete my joy, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I know I struggle in that. We probably all do. But Paul is, is, is saying, agree in the Lord. Let's set our, our stuff aside. Let's have the mind of Christ, putting others first. So agree in the Lord. Deal with your rift. That's, I think he's saying that to us too. We might have squabbles with each other. We might have squabbles with believers. Our, our interest after the Lord's interest. He says, help these women. Sometimes there's a place for some outside intervention, some wise words. Help these women. Paul does not want to see implosion, does not want to see broken apart from within. I love what he says about these people, these two ladies, even though they got a rift. He says that you are my, we have labored side by side. You are with the fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. It's not a salvation issue. It's a sin issue that they're dealing with. Their salvation is by grace alone. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 well, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. Not a salvation issue, but these people, they love the Lord, but they had a rift. So he's saying deal with it. Deal with it. Chapter, verse 4, we hit rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. You know, it's, it's a theme throughout this letter. From start to finish, I think it's over, it's over 14 times that Paul says have joy or rejoice throughout the book of Philippians. He wants us to have, he's talking about having joy and fulfilled life in Christ. You know, Spurgeon said it this way. I like this. He says, What a gracious God we serve who makes delight to be a duty and who commands us to rejoice. Should we not at once be obedient to such a command as this? It's, it is intended that we should be happy. I thought, wow, isn't that it's well stated? God commands us to rejoice. Our, our duty is to find delight and our Lord. So he double states, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, find your joy in the Lord. You know, um, one commentator said it like this, Paul's joy was not based on sunny optimism or positive mental attitude as much as his confidence that God was in control. We can have our joy because God is in control. We can find hope because God is in control. You know, where is true joy found? There's no, we can't fake rejoicing. I can fake a smile. Most of the time you can read through it. You know, I can sometimes try, I can try in my flesh to find joy in things. You know, I broke my phone the other day. I smashed the screen and it was a good excuse for me to justify to myself to get a new one. Uh, so, you know what, the reality is, is that that doesn't bring me any joy. 
You know, when I was in the store, I really wasn't joyful when I handed them my credit card. And when I brought the phone home, I was playing with, oh, this is cool. I like it. Oh, it's fast. The camera's better. You know what the reality is? Is there's no lasting joy in my stuff. There's no temporal. It's this little blip that really is meaningless because, you know, that new phone almost died yesterday when Morgan spilled coffee all over my notes right beside my phone. There's no lasting value in my stuff. There's no lasting value in my position. There's no lasting value in my health. There's no lasting value. You know, when I was studying, I was right around this verse, and I had a Paul Below CD going on in the background, and one of the, the words on the song was, You are good, and your mercy will endure, and forever we are yours. Hallelujah. I thought, man, that is where my joy is to be found because God is good and he's merciful and he endures. And forever we are his, we're held in him. Rejoice. Paul's going to talk about some practical things to help us find joy, to help us rejoice. But before he does that, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. If you go to the, look it up in a Greek dictionary, what the word is, it has the idea of seeming suitable, of being equitable, fair, mild, gentle. It's translated in different versions. Some say reasonableness, some say gentleness, some say patience, some say moderation, some say forbearance. Our reasonableness, he's just come out of this discourse about dealing with some problems. And he's saying, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You know, we, we saw in, uh, in chapter 2 that we're to be lights in this dark and crooked generation. Our reasonableness should be made known. Our moderation, our gentleness, our patience should be something that's seen in the church and outside of the church. You know, it's... We within the church, we talk about this struggle between works and grace, don't we? Because we know that we're saved by grace alone. But at the same time, we're still called to do good works in the name of Christ. I was thinking about when I submit my taxes. I have X amount of dollars in donations, let's say. And I, this happened to me this year. So it happens often. But anyhow... Um, I write down in my income tax form that I donated blank amount of dollars. And I send it in. And they say, oh, that's nice. We want to see supporting documentation. So what do I have to do? I have to, because I e-file, e um, I have to fax in a copy, a paper copy, of the receipts that I've been given. It's supporting documentation to say that, so it supports what I say. You know. Our works, our good works, the things that we do, are supporting documentation to what we state. We say that we, we are believers. We say that Jesus Christ has saved us apart from anything that I've done. We find our hope in Jesus Christ. As we talked about, our righteousness is only given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Our works are just supporting documentation to what we say. Our reasonableness is supporting documentation to what we say. Romans 12, 2 tells us not to conform to 
to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Corinthians talks about the, the helper that the Lord has given us. We have not received the spirit of the world, but a spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what he's freely given us. So we may understand the free gift and understand how to work it out. You know, I, I, I've, I've enjoyed looking at Philippians. I've enjoyed this, this balanced, reasonable doctrine that he's been teaching us. He's been saying, we've been saved by grace alone. Our righteousness is by faith alone. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he reminds us that it's by the gift of Christ alone. And it's this balance to the whole thing, is reasonableness, moderation, gentleness. I love it. It keeps my mind... It helps me keep my mind and my heart at peace. So let our reasonableness be known to all. And then he gets into some of the most very, very famous passage in the Bible. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer... Sorry, I have it memorized in the NIV, so I read it in ESV and I get the words mixed up. Uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's interesting how Paul starts it. I like how he starts it. He says, the Lord is at hand. You know, if, if you do a search through Scripture, you'll see that that term, the Lord is at hand, happens 20 or so times, and it has this idea of, of, of nearness and imminency. The Lord is close. The Lord is coming soon. Be, so, and then he says, do not be anxious. Be, so essentially, it's God's, God's right near us. God's coming really soon. The reality is we live in a generation like no other. There's more fulfilled prophecy than there has been in any generation. Just look, Israel's a physical nation again. The Lord is at hand. We know that he says, where two or three are gathered in my midst, there are, there I am as well, right? The Lord is near us. So do not be anxious about anything. He's, but in everything by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You know, we, we so often, I get caught up and I get anxious and I get worryful. I think we can use the word worry as a synonym to the word anxious sometimes. We don't have to look very long or think very long to know the effects of worry on our lives. How many of us have been worryful and suddenly found ourselves with stomach issues? Or maybe in the doctor with heart palpitations? The inability to sleep, weight loss, weight gain, whatever it may be. You know, I, I had a a little bit of an ulcer last year, and the, the first thing the doctor asked me was questioning me about my worries, questioning me about my stress level. How's my family life? How's my finances? How's my work? That's the first questions they're asking. We take anxiety and worry, and we call it stress. We know well the physical things that it does to our body. And here we're commanded not to worry, not to be anxious about anything. You know, the other thing that, about worry, and it's worth actually doing a quick Google on, Google the word worry, and, and look at the word history of our English word worry. Its root word 
actually started in the early English, and it's the idea to strangle. Is that not what worry does to our hearts and our lives? Strangles us. So Paul is telling us not to be worried, not to be strangled by the worries and cares of the life of life. And he says, but in everything in prayer and supplication. You know what? That means everything. I all too often sit there and think, okay, Lord, I'm going to bring you the big things and the little things I'm going to deal with myself. I think we probably all fall into that trap. I was thinking about it and I was reminded that my biggest thing is not even a speck of dust to my Lord. The psalmist describes the resources of our God in, in range cattle terms. That he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Can you imagine going to the Rocky Mountains and standing around and it was all, as far as you could see, a thousand peaks and it was all covered in range cattle? Could you begin to, to count the vastness of that ranch? the resources of that ranch, you would not get through. You, I'd never get it all counted. I'd never get it all amassed. The resources of my God are so huge that the biggest thing in my life is really nothing to him. I need to be reminded of that every day. Psalm 55:22 tells us to cast your cares on the Lord because he will sustain you. He will not let the foot of the righteous be shaken. And 1 Peter 5:7 cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I also sometimes in my mind with my big little re- request thing, I think does God actually want to hear my prayers? I'm just me. I'm no big time. Does he want to hear my prayers? reminded of what it says in Revelation 5 about the prayers of the saints, that they're poured out as incense before God, as a pleasing aroma, something that brings the Lord joy. He wants to hear the prayers of his children, like a daddy wants to hear from his kids. He wants all things. He doesn't want me worrying. The reality is if we look at the prayer life of of our Lord Jesus, when he was on this earth, he was continually in prayer about all things. Pretty good example to follow. If we look at the Apostle Paul, whose letter that we're looking at today, he's always in prayer. So he says, by prayer and supplication, the idea of of prayer being kind of the broad sense that we bring all these things to the Lord, and the idea of supplication or petition, more of a honed-in prayer, the idea that we're interceding or, or continually praying about the idea of coming with a place of humility, not giving up. He says, with thanksgiving. I know I struggle sometimes to come to the Lord with my problems and thank Him. Sometimes I come to the Lord and I just want His hand. And I don't want to thank Him for what He has done. So Paul is reminding us to th- be thankful in all things. He's actually, he's talking about right, pr- right praying so that we can help, help in, in having joyful, victorious lives, that we can rejoice. Right praying, that remember that the Lord is near. Present all of our things to the Lord. Go with petition and a humble heart. Be thankful. 
And he finishes it up and he says that the peace of God, <clears throat> the peace of God, made tra- um, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. That God wants to give us rest, that he wants to protect us. It's a military term of guarding. He wants to put an outpost beside us. He will guard us. I think of what happens, I think of the story of Daniel a little bit when I think of prayer. Uh, we know the story well. The decree was that no one was to pray to anyone except the king for such and such time. And, and what did Daniel do? He carried on in his pattern of prayer and petition. And you know what? He was arrested and he was thrown in the lion's den. But my question is, who had peace that night? Was it Daniel in the lion's den or was it Darius staying awake in his bed? It was the man who humbled himself before the Lord continually, had peace in the midst of the trial, and the man who put him there had no peace. Came in the morning running, Daniel, did your Lord save you? He was worried that his friend that he had inadvertently put in the lion's den. So write prayer. But you know, I don't know about you guys, but I do something often when I bring stuff before the Lord. We always say that we want to go in the place of prayer and leave it at the foot of the cross. Sometimes I leave something at the foot of the cross for 10 seconds, 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days. I don't know. It varies. All too often I take that. The idea here is that we bring the stuff to our Lord and we put it at the cross, and we take the worry and anxiety out and replace it with the peace of God. And all too often, I back away, and I do that again. I make that transaction again. I go back to where I was, and I worry and stress about these things. Paul's going to give us some tips for peace maintenance, I would call it. First, right prayer, and then he's going to talk about right thinking. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. All too often, I leave something at the cross, and then I start worrying and fretting about it and thinking about it right away again. And I think about maybe that rift I have with someone, and I think about, ah, oh, I still don't like them, and rather than going to where I can find peace. The reality is, is when I evaluate my stuff by my emotions, I get deceived. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? My heart is deceitful and fickle. So where do I go to think of things true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable rather than going back to worry and fretting? I'm reminded of what the psalmist tells us about the word of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are wise and right, rejoicing the heart The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More more to be desired than even gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter than, than honey. 
and drippings from honeycomb. Moreover them, moreover by them your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. To me, it's a call in my life that when I bring something before the Lord, that I come out and I set my mind on the things of the Lord rather than back on my worries. That I come back to his word. Sometimes I struggle to do that. But I think that's what Paul is giving us advice here in peace maintenance, that we bring it before the Lord and we set our hearts back on the things of the Lord. His word says, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Will keep us in peace. And then the third thing for peace maintenance is right living, living out what we know. It says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. The idea is, some translations say, instead of practice, to do these things, either, either. I think of the idea of, of practice. I'm, I'm not a sports guy. But I understand that as we learn a sport, it's repeat, 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 and repeat some more, and repeat some more. I'm learning to hack away at a guitar, and to learn how to make from G to D the first time, I'm like, how in the world? Do, how do you do that? And you know what? As repetition, 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 G to D is not an issue. G to C is not an issue. Cheetah, whatever, a, lot of, a bunch of things are an issue. Maybe some bar chords still are. But the reality is, is that the repetition of doing, of doing, of practicing, putting into practice the things that we know, the things that we have been taught, the things that we see in God's word to do. You know, I know maybe it sounds contrite to say, well, just pray about it. Just set your mind on the word. Just do what you know. And I know I kind of think that sometimes too. I think, oh man, Lord, it sounds really easy, but I struggle in it. And I'm reminded that we who are in Christ Jesus, who are the saints, as Paul said in chapter 1, we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been made clean. We, we live in this world. We're, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We've been washed. You know, our feet still get a little bit dirty as we walk in this dusty world. The image is the open-toed sandals that they would have had before and the dirt roads. You've bathed in the morning. You're clean. You put your sandals on. You walk on the grubby road. And by the time you get to your friend's house for dinner, up to there is kind of dirty. But what did Jesus say? Simon Peter said, said, uh, Lord, not only wash my feet, wash my whole body. And what did Jesus say? He said, your body is clean and does not need a bath. It's only your feet that need to be cleaned. I'm reminded I need to go back to the Lord and ask for help to deal with this dirt on my feet. These tough things, the stuff that I keep on, that I keep on picking back up, I need to ask the Lord for help. He says he gives us his spirit so we can know and understand the things of the Lord. He wants to help us. He wants us to walk in joy, to be able to rejoice. So some things for peace maintenance. Bring it before the Lord. Set our minds on the things of the Lord. Do the things of the Lord. 
and ask for help when our feet get dirty from walking in this world. Now Paul moves into kind of a different section of chapter 4. It says, Indeed, starting at verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Uh, You were indeed concerned for me but had no opportunity. The reality is the Philippian church, as we see a little bit later on, they had been faithful in helping Paul financially. They helped him when he was in Thessalonica. They helped him now. They likely lost contact with him somewhere in his prison shuffles. It wasn't like today where if you're in prison and they're going to move you, your family's going to know where you're going, your friends are going to know where you're going. We're moving you from Kent to Ontario or whatever. It was different back then. Message could only be transported by foot and letter. They probably just simply lost contact. So he's saying, hey, when you heard back about me, you guys, you guys got back on the wagon and continued with your concern, continued with what you had started. And then Paul says something profound. In verses 11 and 12, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Man, it's my prayer that I could say that. That I could say that I'm okay with whatever situation, that I have complete contentment. You know, the reality is, is if we can have that contentment in the Lord, we're going to be people filled with joy. We're going to be people who will be able to leave our worries at the cross. You know, Paul had to be taught this lesson. He said, I have learned in whatever situation. We know that Paul probably was wealthy at one point in his life. Being a Pharisee of the Pharisee, I'm sure at the very least he was well taken care of, if not wealthy. And then the Lord got him. Next thing he knew, he was a bivocational pastor, working for his food and serving the Lord. A little bit later, he's in prison Not like our cushy prisons today. He's relying on people probably to have food and clothes. He learned how to find his contentment in the Lord rather than in his stuff and in his things. His hope in the Lord. I also find it interesting that he says, I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. You know, we are some of the richest people in the world. We know this. I think it's just as dangerous as being dirt poor. I love how it says in Isaiah that, O Lord, that I would not be so poor, I'm paraphrasing, but I would not be so poor as to sin and steal and sin against you. And O Lord, that I would not be so wealthy that I would harden my heart towards you. Essentially, that I'd be content with what the Lord has given me. Content that my citizenship is in heaven, that I'm just simply right now at an outpost. That really, the riches and wealth of the cattle on a thousand hills is available to me in eternity. You know, verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We love this verse in the church, don't we? Sometimes it's used as a name it and claim it verse. I found it really interesting when I was looking at this, when I was looking at the context of verse 13. I can do, it's like he's saying, 
I can find contentment in all my circumstances through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me in light of being high or being brought low. You know, Paul's identity, remember in chapter 3, he gave his list of his resume. His identity used to be in, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisee. I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. And now in his resume, now his identity is in Christ Jesus alone. And he can say, I have contentment and I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Contentment. Only through him. John 5, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. With Christ. Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help from, from my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but that I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well satisfied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, Paul had found that contentment in not having much in prison. He said, I'm okay. Yet it was kind of you to share, share with me. He said, I didn't seek the gift. I didn't go asking for it. But I'm thankful nonetheless that God has provided. He's received in full the provisions that he needed to survive. These guys were a faithful bunch with some level of maturity because we see that they continually were giving. You know, we don't talk about giving and money very much here. We just kind of do when we hit it in the passage. And the reality is, is that when I look at these four verses, I see something very interesting. I don't think that the Philippian church was overly wealthy, and that's why they were giving. It said that it was a sacrifice, a fragrant offering, something that they, a sacrifice has an idea that it costs you something. It was a fragrant offering to the Lord. There was a measure of cost. We know that the kingdom bookkeeping is very, very different than our bookkeeping. I count one plus one is two plus one is three plus one is four plus one is five. That's not how God does math. We know the story well of when the widow put her last coin in the offering box. And what, what did our Lord say? That that was worth more than those large monetary gifts that were thrown in the offering box. A sacrifice. Something pleasing before our God. These people were sacrificially giving. I'm not here to stand up here and say that you must find 10, 10.000% and give that to the church. I'm not standing here saying that. But what I'm saying is that as godly people, as mature people, we are to be giving in a matter that's a sacrifice. And I'm going to say yes to our local church and yes to other things. The reality is we all want to see our pastor get paid and the lights turned on and the bills paid. And there's costs involved with that. And that's why we're to give to our local church. We're also to support missionaries 
and the work of the gospel. Paul talked in chapter 1 about these people fellowshipping and partaking, coming alongside that idea of koinonia, fellowship, in thanksgiving for the monetary gift they'd given, helping out people in prison, as Paul was, the widows, the orphans. We are the wealthiest people in the world. My question that I have to ask my heart, I think we all have to ask our heart, is my level of giving, is there a measure of sacrifice or is it duty? The Lord wants our hearts. The heart of that lady giving her coin is what, is what the Lord was after. The kingdom math was after the heart behind the gift, not the, not the monetary amount of the gift. So I encourage you to question and search your hearts in regards to your finances. And there's a promise here. Sometimes we claim this promise aside from the context before it again. We say, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And you know what? The context is when we're sacrificially giving that God will supply all our needs. It's kind of an if-then promise like many of them in the word are. Remind of Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing till there is no more. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches, according to his vast resources of a cattle on a thousand hills. And Paul finishes up, To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All those who are have place their faith in Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints, especially those in Caesar's household. You know those guys he was chained to? They came to know the Lord by the testimony of Paul. Seeing his faithfulness, I'm sure his faithfulness in prayer. I'm sure seeing the Lord come through in provisions for him. I'm sure being directly prayed for. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? Whether you like it or not, you're getting prayed for. Whether you like it or not, you're hearing the message of the gospel. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you in our spirit. Grace, that favor we don't deserve. That righteousness that we don't deserve. The ability to one day stand before God on that day of judgment and bow our knee and confess with our mouth in joy. Because God is our God of salvation. We put our faith in him. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. An idea that we will have, he'll give us peace, that he will keep our mind in perfect peace. So my challenge for me, and I think for you, is am I leaving things at the foot of the cross? Am I keeping my mind on the things of the Lord? Am I doing these things that I know? Or am I just reverting back to my, trying to do it on my own? Am I bringing everything to the Lord? Or am I just bringing the things that I think are big? Because it's all level at the foot of the cross. Mary Beth, you want to come up? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that it's living, it's active, it's sharper than double-edged.